There are a lot of made-up job titles that I am not qualified to have, but I think one of my least favorites of those is Futurist. I don't think I've really heard that one before. You haven't? It sounds vaguely familiar, but... Maybe you don't listen to enough NPR, but there's there are these people who call themselves Futurists, and allegedly their occupation is just to think full-time about the future. And then companies pay them for that. I don't think this is so much a formal job title, but I, I think it sort of gets at a little bit of what you're trying to get at here, uh, which for me is thought leader. Whenever I whenever I see that phrase, I I I just immediately need to like throw something out a window. Mm-hmm. You're just, just mad. It's just infuriating. <laughs> you're just so mad that they're massaging the data while opening the kimono. <laughs> Are you, familiar, are you familiar with either of those terms? I, I'm f- unfortunately familiar with both. Yeah. Like, what, is that, what does that mean to be a thought leader? Someone who leads with their thoughts. Is... Do we not all attempt to do that at one level or another? Well, speaking of that, good. good <laughs> uh-huh. So go, going back to me not uh, being qualified to be a futurist, uh, along with many things I'm not qualified to be. Um. I've got some uh, semi-real-time follow-up for last week, which is during our little year-in-review segment, uh, I made what was, I thought, a safe prediction about what we might see in the year to come. And and I I think this is a record for any prediction of how quickly I have been proven completely and utterly wrong. This was to say that last uh, last week I said that uh, the Trump presidency would be a national embarrassment, but it wouldn't be as bad as we thought. Nope, just as bad, if not worse. Well, I, I would say in your defense that your prediction might still be correct in that it's it's not as bad as we, we thought it was going to be. It's, it, it's, 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 it's quite a bit worse. So this, but in know, this... a, a narrow interpretation of your uh, words could lead someone to think that you're still correct. Yeah, but I mean, I... I um... I'm not going to give myself that out. I'm going to say in the spirit of which, uh, or I'm going to have it be interpreted in the spirit of which I said it. And no, I thought it might be less less awful. That's that's very futurist of you. Mm-hmm. So, and I want to I want to tell you you're quite the, you're quite the thought leader. Yeah, I, I want to tell you how I arrived at this uh, realization. Well, first there was all all the um, there's a CNN story about um, actually how many stories were there? There was the one where it uh, Trump was informed of the Russian uh, involvement. I think I'm mixing three stories. So that's sort of I think an important distinction of and what's happened in a little over the last 24 hours, which is first CNN posted an article which all it said was that. As an appendix to briefing material that was provided to President Obama and, God, I hate this phrase, President-elect Trump, there was this two-page addendum that alluded to the fact that the Russian intelligence agency had compromising material, they described it as, about Trump. And CNN made it clear that the actual contents of the appendix were completely unverified, 
And in fact, CNN called out that they weren't even entirely sure that the appendix was verbally referred to in these briefings. And that's what that's all they reported. And then very shortly thereafter, I felt like 15 minutes later or something like that, BuzzFeed went live with their version of the story, which actually posted the entire uh briefing packet, which I think was about 35 pages or so, which included these couple of pages that the CNN article referred to. And so that, that that's sort of like, that's been the big distinction because Trump in his press conference today sort of, you know, grouped CNN and BuzzFeed together. And I don't, I don't know if you saw the Kellyanne Conway, which uh, uh, she was on Anderson Cooper tonight and like Cooper, credit to him, like really pushed back on this idea of grouping what BuzzFeed did with what CNN did, meaning that what CNN reported is fact. This all They basically just said, hey, this exists. We're not saying that what's inside is accurate, but we're just saying this thing is around. And then BuzzFeed actually went live with a document which they also admitted they had not yet validated. So it's two kind of two very different things that that happened. And of course, you, you can count on someone like Trump to completely not understand or perhaps understand and willfully dismiss that distinction. But the CNN story, the main takeaway of that was supposed to be that to some degree, he was, along with the outgoing president, were informed of some degree of Russian involvement and or like influence over the election or Trump himself, right? Well, specifically, there. So, again, that's where there is this distinction where there's the accusation that Russia attempted to influence the election. And then now there is also this idea that maybe part of the reason why they chose to do that was because they have this compromising material about Trump, which they could at some future date use to blackmail him if he doesn't do something that they don't want him to do. Got and it. so it's, it's, that, it's that second part that is what was brought to the forefront yesterday. And, you know, CNN, I would argue, did the right thing, where all they did was report that this document exists, whereas Buzz, BuzzFeed then actually went live with the article, or I'm sorry, with the document, that they also admitted, you know, had not yet been verified. And so that's where, you know, BuzzFeed gets into a much more journalistic gray area and sort of what what does it mean for a news agency like that to, you know, post material which by their own admission, you know, hasn't been verified. Has CNN verified that the document on which they were reporting is the exact same? Yeah, I I, I believe so. Hmm. Yeah. I don't I don't believe that's in question. Got it. Okay. Well, backtracking a little bit. So so it's it's all that. And then today's news conference or whatever that was, which was in front of a podium touting him as 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 president elect, was one of the least reassuring and, and most disappointing things I've seen in a very long time. He's He's stunningly, or I should rephrase this differently, he sounds stunningly incompetent. You know, maybe somewhere buried inside that thick orange skull of his is some intelligence, but 
God, when he opens his mouth, he just does not sound like an intelligent person. I mean, there are just an infinite number of phrases, some of which you were slacking to me earlier tonight, where, I mean, if, if, like, if my 12-year-old cousin's daughter would utter some of those phrases, I, I would, I would think that that was sort of an incoherent thought. And it's just, it's just kind of stunning. Yeah. Though I think it was uh, John F. Kennedy who once said, but remember this, we talk about the hacking and hacking's bad and it shouldn't be done. But look at the things that were hacked. Look at what was learned from the hacking. Yeah. End quote. I think, so. that, I think that actually might have been Lyndon B. Johnson. It's easy, easy to confuse, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a, a troubled time. So yeah. kind of kind of easy to confuse. I am kind of sad I didn't live through the Nixon presidency. <laughs> in in the sense that it might have prepared you for about what you know what we're getting ourselves into now. Well, no, Donald's not a quitter. He builds mm. things. He builds big things. Mm-hmm. Be- big beautiful things. On time and ahead. Of, oh wait, sorry, ahead of schedule, under budget. Right. Well, and Mexico's going to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I, I'm going to go back to the point that I've, I've, I've been trying to make, or not not that you're derailing it, but that I keep derailing myself. But um, what what have you made of the media, in particular the business media, uh, in response to, have you, have you seen what he's been doing to the automotive industry? <laughs> or sorry like sorry i should clarify he's been doing these things where he's like in his pre 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 in his during his like president elect status he's been targeting like certain companies individually trying to shame them for not building things in the united states and continually takes credit for minor like business plan adjustments like specifically like he tried to shame ford for moving some production out of the united states even though and and then they like eventually like reverted and we're going to keep some of it in the u.s except that they were already doing that for strategic reasons like have you followed any of this yeah right well i i think there was a similar story about sprint Mm -hmm. and then you know, the first example of this was Carrier, which was going to ship um, a couple of thousand jobs overseas. They ended up keeping about, I think it was about seven or 800 of those jobs, but we're still shipping the remainder overseas, although that second part conveniently was not brought up. And this part is a little fuzzier, but I don't think it's, a, you know, it doesn't take a huge leap of logic to... Uh, think that this is what might happen, but the suggestion now is that Carrier is going to take the um, take the money that is um, being saved by shipping, or sorry, the money that's being given in the form of tax breaks to them as a result of keeping these seven or 800 jobs here in the US, and is going to use that money to invest into how to automate those remaining jobs. So there you go. Yes, that 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 goes right to the heart of it. Where it just seems like he's being given credit. Well, first, like again, he's fighting 
these inevitable business changes that are happening as part of automation and globalization and a lot of the kind of stuff where like it seems like he's being credited for these like small wins even though first that's not what a president should be doing and also that's not going to have any far-reaching effects on helping the economy he's just grandstanding for and i'm sure if we knew the actual details of the tax deals or whatever's being worked out we're probably paying far more for like rather than just saying we're going to give 700 of these workers just government money i'm sure the the exchange or like the, the equation doesn't work out where that's any cheaper or any more expensive the the part the part that infuriates me more than anything else other than the fact that this is legitimately damaging to the economy is the fact that the republicans dance around and point at themselves as being you know the you know get you know get government's hands off my my life and they want they want to take this you know hands off approach to government yet what what trump's doing here is far exceeds anything that even the most liberal of a democrat would do in terms of intervening with the economy so it's just the the sheer level of hypocrisy is stunning but like in this effort to align with like this new populist leader that that is is being demanded out of like the rust belt and and the uh by the people who are seemingly disenfranchised from any like economic recovery i think they I mean, morally, and like they should take a stand against it, but I think they're just going along for the ride for whatever keeps those voters on board because they're those voters are very, very interested in this protectionist economy leadership idea. But that's that's the other. Just it's hard to even talk about this without just like starting to yell about Republicans, which is they are blatantly putting party over country there is no sensible argument that what's happening here is good for the united states meddling in the affairs of individual corporations to save a couple hundred jobs here and there is not what's in the best interest of the nation and what what's what's awful about that is that people like paul ryan know that they're not dumb mm-hmm. they they know that and they're willfully putting their party ahead of what they know deep down inside their hearts is what's good for this country. And that's, that's just really sad. Like, I, I really do like to believe that if the, you know, the, the table was turned and somehow we ended up with a Trump-like figure at the head of the Democratic Party, that I would put partisanship aside and say, this is this is just not what I want to be associated with anymore. And, and I, at in the past, would have said I thought there would be some type of breaking point where that would actually happen. But there were so many kind of like pivotal points in the election cycle and the run up to the the catastrophe that we're in and or are continuing to proceed into, uh, where I thought that would have happened and it hasn't, and that makes me pessimistic that it ever will. Well, we we were talking about this before uh, the show, which is it's easy to get up there and and proclaim that you're going to have a healthcare plan in two weeks and that you're going to build a wall and make another country pay for it and that you're going to magically fix some of the you know quite legitimate problems we have with veteran medical care. I mean, you can you can get up and you can say all these things, 
when you're a candidate and even when you're a president-elect. But when you're actually the president, people, you know, as much as you disagree with some people's views, I think one thing that we all kind of do agree on is that we measure presidents by results, fair or not, by the way. There's many things that presidents get blamed for, which they shouldn't, but the kind of reality on the ground is what presidents get measured against in real time. And I'm holding on to hope that, you know, and unfortunately, it's it's going to mean that things are likely not going to go very well for the country for a while. But, you know, come 18 months from now, it's going to become pretty clear that he doesn't know what the hell he's doing, and that nothing's getting done that he said it was going to get done. And I, I, I do think people will hold him accountable for that. And my counter argument is that none of that mattered during the election and the level of intellectual dishonesty and that he's displayed over that period of time and into going into his inauguration does not suggest any of it will change yeah but i but i think a a clear a clear example will be if this meddling in the economy and these huge tax breaks for individual companies continue to happen. And if tax cuts across the board happen, like that's being proposed, things, something like the deficit, as an example, is going to explode. And people are going to point to that. And, but he'll, and, he'll just say, you got to spend money to make money. Like again, he's yeah, just going to put some bullshit are, spin on it. I don't think, I don't think people are going to buy that. I think you, you think people, but people are buying us resorting back to as an energy source. But as a candidate and as president-elect, you're not, you're not held accountable for results because you're not in charge of anything yet. I, it, it's very different, I think. Maybe, maybe I'm being optimistic, but... I, th- I, th- I think you are. But I hope you're right. Well, I mean, on one hand, I hope I'm wrong because, again, it, it's going to mean devastation for the country, but at least it's, at least it's going to going to prove that you know what we got ourselves into was the wrong decision in the first place yeah to to, to round this out the problem for me is that i was just so like if you want to be a protectionist and like pro-american like economic leader whether you happen to be a democrat or republican or or a green party whatever i i don't see how you can go wrong with the idea of championing that you know what some of these industries are past their prime and are not the way of the future and that the united states even if we lose these jobs you know what we're gonna excel and create new jobs more than we had before in these new energy industries or technology industries where america can show the way and will be the leader in clean energy or any of this kind of stuff like like how how difficult is that to to pivot things away from versus saying you're going to prop up old dying industries just to get votes when even if you are somewhat successful at that is such a temporary solution i i i mean i i could not have said anything you just said better that's that's exactly right because it, like and and again that's probably most of obama's position like i mean we we don't want people to continue to uh, mine for coal. We want them to be working on the next solar city or or something that actually provides value well, and, and I, isn't and just I a dead end. The, the lesson of this election 
is there there was a line in Obama's farewell speech from yesterday too that sort of alluded to this, which was some some folks have been forgotten about. And, you know, to 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 Trump's political I'm strictly politically speaking because again, I don't think this is good practice or legitimately good for these these people, but politically speaking, he said the right things. And, you know, Democrats during this last election cycle didn't didn't have any counter. And they basically just said, well, you're wrong, which sure, that's true. But, you know, like you just began to elaborate on as what what's the alternative? There really wasn't any clear alternative laid out. And I think maybe one of the answers to kind of the hypothetical question you pose is how hard is that then to do? It is hard because you have to explain how you're going to go about doing that. You know, Trump had this narrative, right or wrong, about renegotiating trade deals and, you know, this and that, but repatriating, you know, cash from overseas. But if you're going to, you know, make the argument that we're going to accept the fact that we're losing these jobs or we're going to replace them with even better jobs, you know, how are you, how are you going to go about doing that? You have to have vocational training programs. You have to fund those programs. You have to encourage people to go out and actually go through the process of going through those programs. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a more difficult it's a more difficult narrative to, to explain, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the right one, but it's, it's harder to, it's harder to package in a phrase like make America great again. And un- unfortunately that's what works. Mm-hmm. You saw the Alec Baldwin hat? <laughs> no, I didn't. He uh, got a uh, Make America Great hat uh, printed in Russian. Oh, nice. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. That is pretty good. To round this out, the the whole... Sorry, what I was trying to get to uh, 15 minutes ago, and I apologize. It's got a little rambly. Because uh, I'm, I'm really angry right now. Because uh, the power went out last night, so I wasn't able to... Because of the really stormy uh, situation we've had in the Bay Area for the past couple of days. Uh, I missed Obama's farewell address, so I watched that tonight. And then I had a little extra time before the show, and I was like, you know what? Let's let's follow this up with Trump's first, uh, <laughs> or it, it, I maybe mean, his last press conference before he becomes the president of these United States. Um, and just hearing an hour of one of the most eloquent and uh, it just successful speakers that we've ever had. Uh, and being followed up by this petty man-child who talks like a fourth grader uh, was was very jarring and, and incredibly upsetting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <sighs> yeah. But, you know, he's going to straighten out the whole situation for our veterans. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the situation. And will be the best, uh, the greatest job producer that God has ever created. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's the only one that can fix it. Mm-hmm. 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 I think we should put it out there that I, I think it's it's going to be more difficult for us to ignore the political stuff going forward, and I and, and I don't um, I don't think that's a bad thing. 
I think a, a lesson a lesson to be learned that that we talked about on the show right after the election, and I think to Obama's credit, he called it out multiple times in that address yesterday, which is now's the time where it's really important for us to all become more engaged. So, if we can if we can do our little part on this this little program, then again, that's not a bad thing. I appreciate the sentiment. I wish uh, we could live. I I wish I could live up to that. Well, well, we're going to talk about politics on the show occasionally, perhaps even frequently, and we're not going to apologize for it. Obama has great speechwriters. Mm-hmm. Our Constitution is a remarkable, beautiful gift, but it's really just a piece of, uh, piece of parchment. It has no power on its own. We, the people, give it power. We, the people, give it meaning. It's, pretty, it's, it's pretty good. All right. Uh, yes, yes, we did. <laughs> All right, moving on uh, to the T-word stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. So a couple of follow-up um, bits. Oh, actually, I'll let you go. Do you, have any, do you have any follow-up from prior weeks or not really? No, we're, the, we're perfect on this show. So there's really, there's really nothing to follow up on. Uh, I rescind one of my old picks of the week. <laughs> oh, I did actually, I think, I think I rescind like multiple. Uh, so direct TV now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, wanted to watch the Golden Globes, uh, and apparently, uh, <laughs> uh, being a paying subscriber to an over-the-top service means I'm not actually entitled to watch it because apparently, uh, NBC themselves did not pay for rights to put it on the internet. <laughs> Question mark. I I don't know. Um, so yeah, so that <laughs> I rescind that. Also, uh, their Apple TV app is not good at all because if you uh graze your finger on the little like touchpad on the apple tv remote that that counts as changing the channel which is the worst interface idea uh possible and also it's buggy as all get out so there's that um also i rescind any positive things i said about carplay last week uh it's it's back to being the worst (laughs) there's that but that was no surprise I thought it seemed midway through this week, though, it seemed like it, it, at least with the navigation piece, had been doing pretty well. So what what happened? Yeah. And then when I was coming back from our uh, from the office, uh, I told it to find a very common address and then it tried to route me to Arkansas. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. I'm very explicit when I say like, hey, Siri, navigate to whatever. Like I phrase it in a really particular way where... Ugh. Um, <laughs> God damn it. Um, shut up. <laughs> um, but no, like I, I tell it an address and, and I know the address is right. And the thing is, I know it got it right a day ago. And then it just says uh, a completely different thing. Uh, eight states over and just pretends like everything's fine. And I think, and here's the weird thing, like Apple Maps is actually not that bad in terms of like traffic and routing. I think the main problem with it is just the search is so bad. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do with that. Like, why can't they fix it? Well, I mean, it's it's a, it's an incredibly hard problem to solve. I mean, I think what makes Google Maps successful is that Google had a lot of that information prior to even making a Maps application, whereas Apple kind of pushed the maps application out first and has been sort of trying to fill in the gaps since but how hard can it be to 
guess that people probably want things within 100 miles of them rather than across the country. Well, I mean, yeah, things like that. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, can't they put all those people that are busy not making usable laptops on that project? <laughs> all right. So let's let's get into the meat and potatoes of this. And okay. mm-hmm. uh, there's an important anniversary that we're celebrating. Yeah. So it's sort of the the first of two 10-year anniversaries that I think we're going to be celebrating. Hmm? Uh, well, so what we're referring to here is the this week, uh, Monday, was the 10-year anniversary of the announcement of the original iPhone. So the phone itself didn't come out until June of 2007, but the announcement was made in January 2007. So I think you're going to see a lot of, well, I, I know you're going to see because we've, we've seen it. Uh, the 10-year anniversary articles come out this week. But then, um, as Jason Snell pointed out on this week's episode of Upgrade, I think come June, we're going to see another wave of 10-year anniversary articles within a bunch of sort of, you know, laymen looking at that and going, wait, didn't didn't we just have that six months ago? Um, but anyway, um, kind of, a, I don't know, for us in, you know, kind of the, the T-word circles, um, it kind of, a, I don't know, sort of a, a reflective week i thought sort of fascinating to to look back at that announcement and i feel like you know again part of being older is i I think there are fewer and fewer things i look back on during that time period and and really like remember in vivid detail but i really can say that i can vividly remember watching that iphone keynote in my dorm room freshman year in college and then spending like the rest of that week just reading every little detail i could about the phone yeah so so i asked you about this as to what how many times you'd actually watch the keynote because i because i remember being so impressed and just like in awe as just kind of like it, it was one of the first like except i've been i've been a like a computer nerd for for quite a while like i mean i remember taking apart and rebuilding my old 386 computer running windows 311 uh multiple times but like the iphone was one of the like those like kind of like magical devices where you're like that this is this is insane and i remember watching that keynote multiple times i think i probably watched it like six times overall and there's that part in it where he does the demo where he is um listening to music and then like sending a photo and an email and receives a call and it fades out perfectly. And then when you end the call, it fades right back in. Like, it was just like, uh, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, that was just like, it, it, I just didn't, didn't know what was actually going to happen there because you thought of like, how could this possibly go wrong? Because this looks like such a perfect product. And then there was like all the, oh, it's locked to one specific carrier. Oh, it doesn't have 3G. It doesn't do picture messaging. It doesn't do video. It doesn't do all these things. And and oh, the the sweet solution to application development is like these weird shortcuts on your home screen that open up a tab inside WebKit. Like there were so many weird things about it, but it was also so, so much like insanely better than whatever else was out there. And like, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm just going to believe that the very edited approach of this device is maybe, maybe that's the key. And that's where 
everything else has failed. Like maybe that's why like every Windows mobile phone was like just like this gosh darn atrocity of 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 terribleness and like this very um strict approach would would be the way forward and, and in a lot of ways it was but from like the initial announcement like i think there was so much uh like amazement but also um for me it was like just uh like unanswered questions of how this whole thing would go down so that I remember the two things that just completely blew me away. Number one was Safari and just the concept of having the the full web on your phone. You know, one of the one of the main reasons why I never had any interest in smartphones prior to the iPhone. And this I at this time I worked at T-Mobile, so I was like surrounded by, you know, phones all day. And the thing that I just thought was awful was the kind of like the mobile web that we had at that time i mean even like blackberry had like a like a special web browser right where it like it loaded some yeah like like just basically just you know these stripped down almost like text-based versions of websites kind of yeah jobs i think refer to it as like the baby internet during mm-hmm. the the keynote mm-hmm and that I just never had any interest in that. I mean, it just it just didn't seem like that was useful at all. But the second I saw the idea that you could have the full web um, on your phone, that was super super interesting. Um, although I will say that I so I, I rewatched the the presentation for the first time since you know since it happened um, just today actually, and. Um, <laughs> So the New York Times is the first web page that they load in the Safari demo. And man, it takes a long time to load. And there, he he did a good job of of talking over it to try to distract from the fact that it took like 25 seconds to well, load the page. Yeah, he he really did and he like it it happened again when um he just clicked into a link and then put it in landscape. It sort of didn't freeze, but it just took a while to kind of catch up to him and I mean, just yeah, it's it's jobs being jobs with his just you know, just incredible presentation skills. But um, and then as as a little side note, kind of somewhat related, is there's a point in the presentation where his his clicker stops working, um, and he he starts telling the story about um how Steve Wozniak had created this TV scrambler like in the early days of them working together and how they would like go around neighbors homes and like mess with their tvs it was super funny and just again like you know you put you know 10 people in that exact situation and nine of nine of them would just completely panic but you've got jobs who just you know actually makes it kind of a highlight of the the keynote well in that case after this i'm going to send you a link of when uh an iLife demo goes wrong and he throws a digital camera at somebody <laughs> so i think he's had practice in trying to not yeah yeah so yeah so the, the the other um the other thing that i remember just being completely uh taken aback by was how awesome uh the messages app looked because for me at the time that that was my big thing going back to like high school was texting was you know i didn't really spend much time talking on the phone but like texting was what i did a ton of and you know it was it was okay um 
that was something that I that I thought was interesting about Blackberries at the time was, you know, Blackberry Messenger seemed like that would be pretty useful and a whole lot better than just traditional texting. Um, but man, when they demoed that messages app, um, that that just instantly made so much sense because it was like it was like having a full blown like instant messenger app, you know, right on your phone, which to that point, you know, outside of something like a BlackBerry Messenger had never been done. Yeah, I think the the way that they like if you were a Mac user and you remember iChat, like the way they repurposed that really friendly casual interface on the phone along with like the playful sounds was was really really successful. So I think I think in rewatching the presentation, the the thing that I so I mean those were the things that like, you know, even rewatching it now I was like, yeah, that, that I can see why I was super impressed by that. <clears throat> but like the things that, you know, now in retrospect are really funny to see. Um, the, the, the biggest thing for me was, so, you know, there's the famous setup, right? Where, you know, Steve says, okay, we're coming out with this widescreen, wide, widescreen, touchscreen iPod. A widescreen touch video iPod. Right a mobile phone and internet communicator. And when he sets up those first three things for the first time, there's way bigger applause, like way, way bigger applause for particularly mobile phone and then slightly lesser for the iPod. And then there's literally like just sort of a light applause when internet communicator comes on the screen. Well, because what does that actually mean? Well, but I just, it, it, it it's just, it, I think at the time, and I would put myself in this category, like having my phone be connected to the internet just wasn't like a, that wasn't really something that I thought a whole lot about or thought that I even wanted necessarily. But I knew, but I knew that my phone sucked. So the idea of having like a better phone would be really exciting and I could see why people would get excited about it. But in, in hindsight, of course... I mean, I, I hardly use like the phone part of my iPhone ever, and it's the fact that it's constantly connected to the internet that makes it so useful. Yeah, I, I think, and and remember that this was this was in a, a pre App Store world where the always on internet device basically meant you got web browsing and then like the weather and stocks, and that was about it. Well, yeah, so that that was the other thing that really stood out was that the weather and stock, I mean, what we would now call apps, were only referred to as widgets. <laughs> the phrase app was was never used. Because like in their original form, uh, they looked very, very much like OS ten dashboard widgets. Yeah, like right. Like in these like very, very minimalist um, single function apps. Uh-huh. Right. But again, app wasn't even a word at that time. Right. Actually, was the word app uttered a single time in that sentence no or in he, that in that keynote he used he used the phrase a couple of times that the phone would have desktop class applications but i th that was more in reference to like safari but like when he would open when he would go like in between mail and music he would never say open the music app no no it, it would be we're going to mail we're going to yeah music um and then the other the other thing that was really really interesting was that photos when when that was demoed mm -hmm. that was considered part of the 
phone package. So, so he used that <laughs> phrase a couple of times, phone package. And it was like the phone app, of course, texting, photos, and contacts. Those were the four things that were considered part of the phone part of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, totally at the time made sense because, you know, phones, other smartphones had, you know, cameras and the ability to store photos. So that that was known as being like a smartphone feature. But I mean, of course, now... Like I, I would never associate the camera or the, you know, the storing of photos on my iPhone as like being part of, part of the phone part of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. So just you know, at the time that framing made sense, but now in retrospect, is 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 really bizarre. Yeah. Um, and then of course you know the, the, something that that I remembered a little bit more about and have have thought for a while looking back on is sort of a crazy thing, but with the you know, the fact that Eric Schmidt and Jerry Yang both came up on stage and then, you know, the two of them along with Steve Jobs just over and over again could not emphasize how great the partnership between the companies were and how awesome it was to be able to collaborate on the iPhone. And of course, Schmidt's got that really famous line about how he felt companies could merge without merging and that companies should, you know, stick with you know, stick with what they do best and kind of all work together, which then kind of took me down this rabbit hole of, you know, that was 07 and then in 08, we had Obama with sort of the same kind of like coming together community message. And then now here we are eight years later, Google, Apple, and Yahoo hate each other and the country's falling apart. Anyway, uh, um, but at the time, it um, there there was this just really what it we would now what we now clearly see as being kind of this crazy crazy collaboration with with Apple and Google and Yahoo which you know well uh, uh, so i mean yahoo that that was mainly they wanted to have something that would make it maybe like they wanted something to compete with blackberry cuz push email was kind of a, a big deal at that point and that was the whole point of the yahoo integration was that they had imap email that had a push component and it was and it, and it was free Steve's jobs made sure to emphasize that a handful of times in the presentation. Because in twenty in twenty oh twenty oh seven in two thousand seven, Gmail already existed, right? Yeah, but it was it was pop only, which was um, was it? Yeah. So mm. there was there's a slide in the presentation which because he jobs oh, jobs yeah. emphasized that you know hey you're going to be able to hook you know any of your any of your email um, services into this thing. And there was a slide that said, okay, you know, here are the ones that are going to support IMAP. Here are the ones that support POP. And Gmail was in that POP. And I, I remember that because the IMAP option didn't come out until like, I think it was a couple of years later. Hmm. And I remember that same screen because I, I re- rewatched this last night too, where, uh, or like on Monday, um, on the, the IMAP section, it said Microsoft Exchange, which was completely not true. Yeah, that yeah, I didn't. That threw me for a loop too. But I because there was a way, there's like there's a really unsecure option that an administrator of a, like an Exchange 2007 server can turn on, where it can filter all your mail through IMAP. But that defeats every advantage of Microsoft Exchange. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wasn't an Exchange user at the time, but I, um, that struck me as being weird. Yeah, but the other thing before we move too far away from like the the phone thing that you you brought up, where the demo was also a little bit weird 
in the sense that uh, do you remember like i didn't not remember that al gore left a visual voicemail so that that, was that was awkward (laughs) that that part i actually did vaguely remember the the part that i had just no memory of was the the first phone call that he made where so he calls johnny ive who is is standing in the audience and I'm, i'm assuming all of that was real i think it was um and then Phil Schiller calls him while Steve and Ive are on the phone. And so then it becomes like this conference call between the three of them. And like the um, the video feed of the presentation sort of has this picture in picture with Jobs on stage and then Johnny and Phil in the audience. Mm-hmm. And Johnny and Phil are, are on flip phones, which yeah. is which is really good. But I, I had no memory of that whole exchange. But um just a, a totally like classic moment yeah although i do like that uh the phone interface was basically completely redesigned by the time it shipped and it looked nothing like what was actually demoed on stage yeah so there was there was that weird thing where when you were on a call and you went back to the home screen like the the phone icon would be like flashing at you like it pulsed rather than having that bar at the top and then like there was this thing like when you were switching calls where it went into this like weird mode that doesn't actually exist on on the shipping phone so yeah that that got super rewritten and that goes back to again again the show that apparently this is just like the mystery science theater of upgrade i guess is what our show is um <laughs> when when jason was talking about um that when he got to handle a prototype that a whole bunch of the apps just weren't there and they when you tapped on them they were just screenshots of whatever the placeholder was supposed to be yeah, that I I had not heard that story before, but I um I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Um. Although the other thing I'll say about the phone app though is, I think what they demoed on stage and then what we end up ended up getting in June, yeah, were quite a bit different. But but man, I I, I have my iPhone right now and I'm I'm in the phone app and what we got in June of 2007 is basically what we still have today. I well, because nobody uses the phone. It, it damn near looks exactly the same as it did back then. Yep, visual voicemail is just as unreliable, and now it has kind of weird transcriptions in it. But other than that, it's pretty much exactly the same. The, the transcriptions actually work surprisingly well. They're not they're not perfect, but they're they're pretty good. Yeah. Um, what else? What else? Yeah, and and just kind of like I I what I when I rewatched it, I paid attention to kind of to like the weird, not weird, but the the things that got the most applause or the most like reaction. And the first time the audience saw the slide to unlock screen, like I did have the same reaction, which was like this pretty damn impressive or that's just, that's so simple and logical and that makes perfect sense. So that, that was, that was really cool. Um, and then also the, the ringtone, mm-hmm. which I think had a pretty instant, uh, like cloud crowd pleasing reaction. Yeah, I think it, my bullet point in the notes that I kind of took while I was watching it was iconic ringtone because that's mm-hmm. that's really that that ringtone is, is become iconic. Mm-hmm. Even even if you don't own an iPhone, you know that ringtone. Yeah. Um, I the, the other thing that really stood out to me was the the whole introduction and then demoing of multi touch because I, I literally it, it seems like like kids today are just are just born with the concept of multi-touch like you can put a, a an iphone or an ipad in front of a kid 
very young kids, two, three years old, and they just sort of like intuitively know about like pinching and about like multi-finger gestures. Like the, the, the idea of, of multi-touch interactions are just sort of second nature. But like, you know, during the, during the presentation, Steve like has to explain, okay, you know, we're going to zoom in on this photo. We're going to do so with two fingers and you're, you're going to have them close together, you know, or, or you're going to have them far apart and then you're going to bring them together. We call that like the pinch. So he's, he's like explaining what multi-touch is, which again, at the time, yeah, you have to do that because it's an entirely new concept. But it's just like, like today, it's like you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have to do that with anybody. People just know. It's just, it's just, it's, it's a totally natural part of the way that we, you know, interact with technology. And, and in fact, if a device doesn't have multi-touch now, it's considered kind of weird. Mm-hmm. That's what's like, that's what's multi, not having multi-touch is what's not intuitive now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything that's underappreciated about the iPhone now is the stuff that just seems so obvious in retrospect, even though it totally wasn't because we went 15 years in computing where none of that existed. That's that's such a good way of saying it. Yeah. Um, what else? I was wrapping up with the phone thing. There was the throwaway gag of uh, calling the Starbucks outside Moscone. Was that, was that and, real? I'm pretty sure. I don't think they just hired I think some. It, I think it was too. And I, yeah. I had forgotten about that. But yeah, I the four thousand lattes. Yeah, I, I remembered that line when he I, it came back to me when he said that. But I just thought like. Holy cow! <laughs> how would how would it have been to be that Starbucks worker? I'm not. I'm not sure she cared. Yeah, uh, she seemed unamused by it. Um, but that was fun. But it, overall, like, uh, yeah, for me, like, it it was just that one complete demo at the end that just just was 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 perfect and kind of set the stage for everything that happened well, afterward. And th- well, that was a that was a brilliant way that they had set up that demo where I think it was really smart to kind of frame the device into these sort of like three unique things. But then, you know, he, he, he sort of does that and then sort of talks a little bit more, but then says, okay, now, now that you kind of have all this background, you know, here's how we're going to bring these things together and how you're actually going to use it day to day. And that, that was so smart because you're right. That that's where, like these features, even individually, were super impressive. But yeah, when you when you started to bring them together, it, you knew you had something special. When the music fades back in after the phone call out, yeah, nineteen year old me was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, right. Um, you know, then- you know it, was, it was kind of amazing too, though. Was um, the, the, so the 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 first I was really paying close attention to this because I because I couldn't remember the moment. The first time the hardware is ever shown on the screen, it's it's a total just like throwaway slide. Mm-hmm. It, it's like up there for it's a couple of seconds. There's like no applause or anything. Well, you mean when he's describing what the input method's going to be, and he's like, oh, "Are we going to use a stylus? No, you got you got to you got to find them. You got to throw them away or whatever." Well, so it, there's a slide shortly even before that, which just briefly shows the phone. But then, yeah, that comes up shortly thereafter and, and sticks for a little bit longer. And again, there's just like there's no audible reaction from people looking at the hardware. Because I think like people just thought like, oh, that's an illustration or that's not what it actually is. Because yeah, it, it was so unassuming and simplistic. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, and what else? There was one other thing. Um, 
And then there was like, this is unrelated to the keynote itself, but you'll remember the the stories of like in the week afterward where the CEO of BlackBerry is like, this thing must get 10 minutes of battery life or that the demo was all faked. And that just kind of speaks to the the the, the mood of everybody at the time. When, when Microsoft, their response was just to put uh, big ass icons on Windows Mobile and call it Windows Mobile 6.5. And then BlackBerry made the BlackBerry Storm, rest in peace. And then, yeah, a couple years later, or maybe a year and a half later, uh, was it called the uh, the HTC G1? What was what was the first uh, weird Android phone? The G1, mm-hmm. which did not have multi-touch. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, weird plus minus buttons on the web browser. Right. When you could get Edge on T-Mobile. Yep, that's right. Yeah. All right. So, any other keynote business or? I mean, that, that was sort of the, the, those were sort of the big items. I mean, there were lots of just little nuggets that I, you know, had kind of semi forgotten about or completely forgotten about, like the, the Bluetooth headset <laughs> accessory that they threw out there. Oh yeah. Which also had a, had a position on the docking station too. Yeah. You're right. Had forgotten about that. Um, had forgotten about the way that they, um, framed the pricing where they said, you know, Hey, if you don't buy this, you're gonna you're gonna buy an iPod that's one ninety nine. You're gonna go out and get some other kind of dumb smartphone that's gonna be about two ninety nine. And so you know together, obviously, then so you've got a you know four ninety nine kind of bundle, and that that's that's what the pricing started at for the four gigabyte model. So kind of you know, it was kind of a funny way to frame the the pricing, but also kind of smart. And I don't remember this from. The keynote, and I also don't remember this from like the actual implementation of it. But were those four ninety nine and six ninety nine, or whatever the prices were, were those announced as having been fully subsidized, or that a contract was required? Yes. Like on stage, they said this is with oh, a two year, no, not, not on singular stage. contract. No, not on stage. But it became it, it was it was known shortly thereafter. Yeah, that was that was insane. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but also remember what's insane is that it was completely turned on its head just later that year. So phone comes out in June, but then they do their traditional iPod event that September, September two thousand seven. They come out with the iPod Touch and they slash the iPhone price by what, like two or three hundred dollars. So I mean, it, it all it all kind of happened in a, in a very a very short time period. And I think you got like a, I think you got a like a, a straight a straight up refund or at least like Apple Store credit if you were someone who bought the iPhone prior to that price cut. And and um, I just looked this up, like, yeah, this uh, like that price cut thing it was accompanied by one of the like famous like uh, Steve Jobs, uh, uh, here you go, like you in greats thing, where it says uh, our early customers trusted us and we was. We must live up to that trust with our actions in moments like these when he gave everybody a $100 gift card to the Apple store to make up for the the $200 immediate price cut. Right. Like that was... (laughs) Do you remember what the phone like after the price cut cost unsubsidized? Well, I don't. I want to say that at that time, and actually even for the few years thereafter, you you could not buy the phone unsubsidized. Well, but what like what happened? What happens if you bought it on contract and then you broke it? There has oh, to be well, some type of replacement oh, cost. Yeah, I I, okay, I guess. 
I mean, I, 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 mean, I guess it was probably six hundred grand. Well, no, because if it was six hundred fully subsidized on contract, then what was the subsidy? Well, I, I don't. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because that goes back to the whole Steve Ballmer thing, where he he laughs at it, saying uh, a, a smartphone with no keyboard, six hundred dollars fully subsidized. Like, what was the price beforehand? I don't know. I don't know. I guess, yeah, you know, that reminds me. We we didn't we didn't talk about the whole keyboard thing at all. But I mean, I guess that's that's something that you know, it's sort of everybody sort of remembers about, you know. I, and then actually, that was another thing that I distinctly remember at the time. Actually, being like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I guess I was biased in the sense that I, I never really did like or use hardware keyboards, so I, I was already sort of on board with the idea that there would be something better than that. But you know, this, the, the way they framed it was so smart, where they didn't just say, "This is actually going to be a faster way of typing," which is sort of a more subjective thing. But the, the first thing they said was, you know, hey, listen, like, you don't need the keyboard all the time, but here on these other smartphones that are out there, the keyboard takes up like half the space of the device all the time, whether you need it or not. There's all these control buttons, which obviously you can't just swap out later. And I, I remember thinking like, yeah, that is, that's so smart to be able to, you know, change the UI and cater the UI based on, you know, whatever, you know, environment you're in. Super, super smart. And one last keynote bit that that reminds me of, which is that uh, like the XY graph of smart and not so smart and easy to use thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. That was pretty good. And the Motorola Q was the worst of them. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, 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 last, the last thing I had on, on the keynote, which is just sort of like just the overall takeaway I had from, from watching it again was like it, it's totally there's two kind of seemingly incompatible things that I, I think hold completely true, which is on one hand, the, the presentation looks like a total blast from the past, but at the same time, I can totally remember being in that moment and just thinking like how incredible all of that was. So, you know, it, you can, you can both see how you could look at the presentation that day and how we see it today. And it's just, even though those, or even though they're very different feelings, it's you. You can kind of almost like take yourself back and forth between those feelings as as you're watching it. Mm -hmm. And man, like it is just a reminder of how far we've come with technology. Like I, I we we sort of bitch and complain a lot about incremental improvements with the iPhone and with other technology, but I, I think it's easy to do that when you're kind of following the stuff like day by day, like we are, but when you sort of like take that step back and look at the bigger picture, like you realize in 10 years, like, holy crap, like technology's come a long way. Mm -hmm. So after the keynote, so I mean, of course we probably both obsessed over it for a little while. And I think I held out two months before I got it. Uh, when did you get your first one? Well, I I bought it from you. <laughs> did you? Yeah, I I bought your original iPhone. Was this after I got the three G, or did I? Yeah. Got a, okay. Mm -hmm. So you you went out and you got the three G day one because that was also the the App Store day one of the App Store. Um, and then I maybe even that same day or definitely within that like same week, I I bought the original iPhone from you. Got it. 
and then I, <laughs> then I, then I jailbroke it. So that oh, because you had to use your, your so that I sim. so that I could use it on my eighteen or my uh, T-Mobile employee plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I like I did the well, no, I guess I yeah I, I I did jailbreak it in such a way where I could have like sideloaded apps too, but I never did that. Yeah, I just just used the jailbreaking for the um, ability to use a different SIM card, and then you know just stuck with the App Store. So, what were your expectations afterwards? Like, because you'll remember that Apple during that keynote, they they said like, what like what's our measure of success? Like, what do we what do we um, how many like units do we want to sell? And they said, I believe they were going to settle for five percent of the global phone market. Was that it? Oh, one percent. One percent. Yeah. So wow. like they they called out the fact that in the previous year leading up to the announcement that a nearly a billion phones had been sold worldwide, and so you know they phrased it as being you know hey for every one percent of that market that we can capture that's ten million phones. Got it. So so how how well did you think it was going to do? What what was your way way better than that? I. You know, I, I wish there was something I like wrote at the time or something, but like I re- I really do remember thinking this is this is gonna be just huge and that this is gonna completely change phones and that everybody's gonna want one of these things. Hmm. There there I, w- I would say even today, there's been nothing about the iPhone success that surprised me. There has to be because, like the the deg- like the level of in, like once we got to the iPhone four and four S and just like how in like once once they, tur- like were cooking with gas and, and like they they got it on Verizon they got it on China Mobile they got it on all these big carriers around the world and it just went from being a successful product that was limited in a lot of ways to being just this thing that was selling, uh. 50 billion units a quarter like that's like I, I if i'm being honest like i don't think i ever thought it could have been that successful i thought this might be like you know kind of a a premium smartphone that was popular in the u.s to a certain degree with the same set that was going to use a trio um or some other type of existing smartphone but it becoming as popular as it was i i don't think i would have thought it would have happened so soon like just like a like a modern smartphone in every pocket is not what i would have thought would happen in four years i guess yeah maybe i i I could have rephrased what i was saying a little bit which is like the direction the iphone's gone has not surprised me and its popularity has not surprised me but yeah I, i agree with you i think the pace at which this has happened has been crazy like i i would put smartphone adoption into that category and then i would also i think we've mentioned this on the show before like i would also put something like netflix streaming into that category too where i could like i remember you know having the disc-based plan with netflix and then they started kind of talking about the streaming stuff and like the streaming stuff even was starting to become available and i was saying like okay yeah like obviously that's where this is gonna go but then it felt like within like a couple years it was just like Oh shit! I don't even. I don't need a disc plan anymore. Like we're we're already here. Yeah, and I think Apple was extremely lucky for whatever set of circumstances and hiring decisions or or whatever made them make the decisions that they did that made it more successful than it otherwise could have been. 
Like if if somebody hadn't convinced uh, Jobs to create iTunes for Windows, it wouldn't have been as successful as it would have as it had been. If the developers and some certain like forces inside of Apple had not pressured them to create a native SDK and uh, support application development as quickly as they did, I don't think the project would have been nearly as um, versatile and uh, necessary as so many customers found it to be. Because internally, like there was a debate where like did didn't they did they not say that um like it's not that they were just delaying apps for an extra uh, an extra year to make sure the phone was stable i think genuinely several people inside the company didn't think it was that important i mean i think i think jobs was one of those people yeah yeah so i think the fact that he was surrounded by people who maybe said like this is that important or necessary changed the fate of the product by by a a, a, a very large degree I, I might be sugarcoating this a little bit, but like I, I, I want to say that I I remember thinking with like, so like the, the big things were the lack of 3G, the lack of native apps, the price, and the keyboard. Like I remember those being, well, and, and I guess the fact that it was only available on singular slash AT&T. Um, and people cared about MMS for some reason. Yeah, right, right. Um, but like, so with, um, I, I remember thinking like with edge, like I, I knew they would go 3g. And in fact, actually Steve jobs even said it on stage that, you know, we're, we're going edge now, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to 3g. Um, well, he didn't say it in such, no, he such, did. Like, so I, well, I wrote, no, he, it, I no, wrote he, it down. He did, but he didn't say it in such a conciliatory way. He didn't say it like, Oh, I know edge is a stopgap. He was like, Oh, oh we are no. supporting edge now. And oh, I, I forget. He said like uh like three like he said like GSM is what we're supporting. We're on the road. Like he said some really weird thing of why he was validating the idea that it was GSM. Um he just he said so he said something I what I wrote down was plan on making three G phones in the future. Hmm. But anyway, um I figured it would come to more carriers. I figured it would be cheaper eventually i was really confident about the app thing like i I just knew they had to come out with apps and i maybe it happened a little quicker than like i would have thought but that just seemed like something that they had to do um and then i you know i again i was already kind of optimistic about the keyboard as it was so i i kind of figured that you know people would get used to that Mm -hmm. so i i don't know I, i remember being really really up on on apple and really up on the the concept of the iphone yeah i remember i came came close to uh investing in apple at the, which would have been like my first ever investment but i just did, didn't have a lot of uh free cash flow at that time so it's all tied up in the banana stand <laughs> that's right um yeah and then just uh, going away from like the core product for a minute. I, I, for me, one of the most fun parts of that whole period is not just how rapidly the product grew. Um, it was the responses and just kind of like what products came out afterward from competitors trying to match or beat uh, the feature set of the iPhone. Like again, there was the BlackBerry Storm. There were the like uh, the early Android phones. 
Microsoft's uh, attempt to revamp Windows Mobile. There was WebOS. Like, there's all these other things that just couldn't touch it. Man, the BlackBerry Storm. Wasn't that that's the one that had like like the whole screen depressed, right? Yeah, yeah. John Krasinski's career never uh, came back after that because <laughs> he was the spokesperson of it. Because yeah, it had uh, it was it was a capacitive touchscreen that like was on top of like this uh, mechanical click layer where when you touched a, a key on screen, it would glow, but it wouldn't actually uh, register um, a keystroke until you actually pressed down on the screen, which was. Um, a novel idea, but meant that you couldn't type quickly on it, and that mechanism broke so quickly, so that um, there would always be one corner of your screen that would not actually depress after a while. You know, speaking of uh, John Krasinski, not not to go back to the keynote, but oh um, yeah, the the future Dwight. <laughs> yeah, so the the first um, demo they did a video was um, a cold open to an episode of The Office. And it was, yeah, it was an episode where um, Jim had had left um, to go to a, a different paper company and he had, had taken some of the um, letterhead from Scranton and um, was, <laughs> was faxing it to Dwight as if it was Dwight from the future. That was pretty good. And it made, made me really miss those first few seasons of The Office. Mm-hmm. And it was also funny because that's back when people bought episodes on of TV on iTunes in standard def for $2 a piece. <laughs> well, and people were doing that with, and including me, people were doing that with um, iPods. Like, I, I, I definitely bought a season or two of The Office and a season, season or two of Lost to watch on my iPod. Yeah, I remember getting my uh, fifth generation video iPod and, and then transcoding uh, bootleg episodes of House on <laughs> to watch during yearbook class. Those are good times. Um, speaking speaking of um, TV, we a late completely late breaking news that I've I've just been sent um, by some friends of the show. Um, Arrested Development's coming back for season five, officially. <laughs> That's. A- the last, like, I'm sure we've talked about this, but the, like the last one was, was just me. It was legitimately terrible, right? Like, yeah, I'm trying to see. So there's a, I can, I can send this to you. So, um, yeah, Troy just sent me, um, this business insider article I'm trying to see if, um, there's anything about an agreement on having the cast kind of all be together, you know, for more than like two hours, like in the last season. Isn't Michael Sarah like thirty five now? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. <clears throat> it doesn't say at all about the structure of the show, but they they can't do what they did for season four again because that was so bad. And I thought, and I thought like that whole Mister F season three thing was was not good. But mm-hmm. why can't they just leave it alone? If 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 they can make it, if they can somehow like recapture the the feeling of one of those first two seasons, I I would be. I'd be on board with that. Um, where were we? Oh yeah, John Krasinski and and the Blackberry Storm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just everything else that people tried to 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 frame as like iPhone killers. Uh, it, it was just so laughable for so long, and I and I don't think 
anything actually ever came close to being like iPhone, like true iPhone competitor until like probably like the Samsung Galaxy S3, which is like 2012, which the odd part about that is that Steve Jobs on stage literally said, this is literally five years ahead of any ever uh, like any other phone. Uh, yeah, and that, it was it yeah. was totally true. Yeah, that that was another thing I wrote down to to bring up. And yeah, that that was completely spot on. Yeah, and it's and it's ten years later, and Android scrolling still stinks. <laughs> <laughs> and things didn't, didn't they? I thought didn't they have that? Did they call it like butter? I thought they, you mean, I thought Android. They like, yeah. Oh yeah, on Android four, I think this is back on like uh, Google I/O, like back in twenty twelve. Um, they had a they had what's called Project Butter. Where every part of the operating system would render at like sixty frames a second or some, some crap like that, except since Android doesn't prioritize t- uh, processes logically, like the phone always gets bogged down and it drops frames rather okay. than oh good rather than slowing down the phone, it just drops frames where everything like just looks all stuttery and weird and that like you, it becomes unresponsive. Actually, so keep going back to this keynote, but it's there's just so much to unpack from it, but um. It, clearly at the time this was not the case but like in retrospect god all, all the animations and things were so choppy <laughs> and with like at the time we they looked you know just incredibly smooth but it wasn't no i mean it wasn't bad i like I, i'm gonna give them a ton of credit for it like the only thing is that i think it wasn't until the iphone 4 that the um like the checkerboard pattern was fully banished because that was the thing, yeah, like the on the original iPhone, if you did not scroll extremely slowly, the web page would checkerboard all over the place. And then with the, I th- maybe, or maybe it was the 3GS, that was the one where it finally stopped doing that anytime you scroll too quickly. I guess I, I, I mean, even more than that, though, just even like the, the you know, animation of going back to the home screen and the, the apps sort mm-hmm. of, you know, zooming, zooming out like that just, you know. You do that on a modern iPhone, and it's it doesn't look anything like it did in that original demo. That is the one thing about the iPhone Seven is it's very, very, very snappy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the it's the first phone where the animations don't feel um, too long. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I don't know what what else. What now? Um. Well, we're running a little long. Um. We've got a. I, th- I think that's kind of that's everything from the the iPhone anniversary stuff. I think that I. Well, have. no, no. I meant what, like what now with the iPhone. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I well, I I mean, I'm I'm sticking with my prediction from <laughs> seven days ago, which is uh, I know big. That's that's bold of me. Um, I I think this year's phone's going to be big. I, I think this is going to be a. Um. I, I like I don't know I I always I I still th- I still think of like the iPhone four as being like the biggest leap, you know, v- visually performance wise everything about that phone was just so different than what had come before. I I, I think that this phone's going to be like that, but even more of a radical change. Okay, do you have any worries about now that growth has officially plateaued and is actually declining? Do you have any fears about that? No, I mean it's it's entirely the law of large numbers. I mean, the the growth shrinks. There was there's just there's just no way that they could continue growing at the rate that they were in you know 2010, 11, 12. There's just just no way. But again, shrinking. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, in in moderation. I mean, if there's if there's some crazy drop off, that would be concerning. But but you don't you don't ever think that pricing pressure is going to catch up to Apple? No, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, not not especially not with with phones and like the weird like monthly plan things we do now. Like phone pri- phone pricing is kind of all over the place. So I I don't think that's that's a primary concern. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, sorry, what was my last thing? Um, oh, and then lastly, what was what's uh, what has been your favorite iPhone over the past ten years? There's only one right answer. I, th- I thought the iPhone five was really good. Okay, partial credit. Five S. Okay, sure. Yeah. Touch ID. The oh, best, oh, yeah, and, and and the best size. Yeah, and the one that ha- the first one to have space gray. It didn't scratch like crazy, it, and it just felt perfect in the hand. Well, that's so. That the reason I said the five, yeah, was was the screen size. Yeah, I do wish they would. Uh, you know, they, they should make the plus like six and a half inches, just so people feel really ridiculous using it. <laughs> and then they make the iPhone eight uh, like a tiny bit smaller than the seven, maybe in between a five S and well, a that's, seven. That's, That'd be perfect. That's the 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 consistent rumor that keeps cropping up, and it feels like it's it's cropping up more now. Is that one of the things about this year's phone is is going to be that it, the screen sizes are going to be different. Okay. And there's there's been some there's been some things that have alluded to an even bigger phone, but then there's I think been even more that's alluded to yeah something like in between like a a 5s and and what we have now. So I I, I don't know. Yeah, they just need to discontinue the iPad Mini and make that the uh, iPhone 8 Plus. <laughs> just really stick it to you plus people. God, that's that, that's that's still weird that I own an iPhone Plus and like it. I think I think you voted for your. Ah, never mind. <laughs> oh, I won't go there. All right, this man, this is running long. Okay, um, wanna. I hmm. so I here here's what I'm going to propose is. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm scanning the list to see if there's, there's anything like time sensitive that we have, but I I don't really think there is. Um, the I mean, like the Yahoo stuff, I guess, is sort of timely. But other than just calling out the fact that I think Altaba is that how you? I've never actually said it out loud yet. Mm-hmm. Is that how? Is that how we think we pronounce it? Yeah, it, it's just a awful name. <laughs> well, so how about this? Let's let's um, let's talk about Alexa. Okay, and we'll talk about uh, Dell's monitors, and then everything everything else. I think we can. Uh, Push back a week. Okay, I think I think that works. All right, unless you're dying to talk about Apple Watch. Uh, yeah, I want to, but no, we we can push that back a week. Okay. So uh, apparently CES happened, and I legitimately. I'm sorry, what? I legitimately did not know that CES had happened and or was still going on or not. As a as someone who works for a company that 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 goes to CES and and sends people there. Um, it was like the week before I had like, or maybe like two weeks before I had overheard someone saying that they had, you know, bought their ticket and were going. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I completely forgot that, that that's when this happens. Yeah. But CES is always, it's turned into kind of like kind of a gross thing, right? Because any company that actually like matters nowadays, like they, they have their own independent like press events and that kind of stuff. Like Samsung doesn't Samsung doesn't go to CES, do they? Oh yeah, no big time. Hmm. Um, 
I don't know about a gross thing, but it's just, it's just, it's kind of, I would describe it as worthless. Well, but like, isn't, isn't CES just filled with like booths of just like the most random, like junk? Oh yeah. It's just, it's full of a bunch of stuff that's just not ever going to come out. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing that is probably going to come out because apparently like just Alexa is everywhere now, um, is or sorry a lady in the cylinder is is that that amazon is just a, a taking a uh an echo everywhere approach which which is weird and and the main thing i want to talk about here is where do you think um amazon's voice service works like do you think it's mainly a like kitchen slash home device or like where does I mean, where does it fit? I mean that's how I see it. I I mean I almost exclusively use you know the the Echo stuff as you know, like you know kind of like a smart home controller. So that's totally how I see it. Um, because it's it's Ford that's trying to put it into cars now, right? Right. Mm-hmm. That seems odd. Yeah. Well, I I think I, to to me the the big hook that's missing is you know when you're outside your home you sort of then you know your phone then sort of becomes your your primary technology interface and you know obviously um amazon's never going to be the primary voice interface of something like you know the iphone or android so that's where that's where i don't really know how far amazon's reach can be outside the home yeah because yeah they're they're never going to be I don't think Google will ever allow them enough flex uh, like latitude to um shoehorn Alexa onto um like the the Android interface. Like right. they're going to be very protective of having Google Assistant or okay Google on there. Yeah, like but it does seem to make sense in the car. Like I do want to say like uh, like do Alexa commands in the car. That makes more sense, but it is it is weird just because unless Amazon makes a phone, like this is the thing where I don't really understand, like, are there going to be multiple winners in like the voice AI assistant space or does Apple somehow eventually catch up and they just win by default? And whenever they make an Alexa style of or like an Echo style device um, that they they close the gap, like what's what what happens? I mean, it seems more likely that Apple would close the gap than Amazon would become sort of like the de facto standard everywhere. But what what changes with Apple? And yes, I don't know. And and you know, every day that goes by, it just seems like the Echo becomes more and more sort of the the go to thing for this. I mean, it's still very much early days, mm-hmm. but but um, the thing like with with iOS updates, it doesn't seem like Apple is willing or capable i'm not sure which one it is to actually improve siri like it seems like it's basically exactly the same as it shipped in with the 4s was that the first one uh-huh yeah in 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 beta yeah it it doesn't really seem much better like sure i don't get the uh uh iphone can't take any requests right now but um it doesn't seem like it's improving at the rate that alexa or anything else does which makes me think that's just either Apple doesn't have the resources or they're just they're not in it to win it and they think the performance of it is acceptable. Whereas like I mean I like we get the like Alexa newsletter that 
man, you got to bleep all this out. I'm sorry, because I, I don't have my Alexa turned on, so I'm not worried about this right now. But <laughs> but like it, it, she's always learning new things in their new skills. And while Alexa, or while Echo is probably one of the least um, the least conversational of the AI assistants, um, like that standardization of the of like the syntax of how you talk to it makes it probably the most reliable, which is why I think it's the most sticky. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, one thing I did have a question for you, though, like, uh, and we talked about this in the past a little bit, but do you know, with any of the voice assistants, can you ask them clarifying questions? What would be like an example? So I was trying to do this uh, when I wanted to add something to a root where I asked uh, Siri if I could add a, like uh, another destination to my root. And it just said, I, I can't understand what you said. Are you able to ask Alexa how to do something? No. Mm -mm. Don't you think that has to get fixed before this goes mainstream? Like, you have to be able to talk to you. you like, the device needs to teach you how to use it. You can't just be expected to know how to use it. And being able to be conversational and ask it questions on its own syntax and use has to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think Amazon largely does that through the app because when you add a new skill, it'll usually list out like, "Hey, here are the things you can do, and here are the related commands." Yeah, I don't know. For for me, it just feels like you have to be able to say, uh, "Alexa, can I do X?" Or like that. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll we'll get there. I mean, that'll that'll be the next step of this stuff, but that's that's not where it is now. Yeah, it's kind of where it needs to be, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, that seemed to be the big thing out of CES. There was um, a lot of uh, Amazon seems to be like giving this away. It seems like they kind of want to pull like a, a, a Windows back in like 1995, where they just want that everywhere and let everybody else do all the hardware stuff. Or like I or um almost like a like a Netflix approach where they just they just want to be integrated into everything. That uh is that an original thought? That that's really that's really smart. That is, that is an original thought. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean that that's just I was like wow. Um, no, that's that's totally true. Mm -hmm. And that and that's why like that's sort of why I'm I'm you know I'm I'm not completely sold that that Amazon's going to become the de facto standard for this stuff. But I mean, you know, I think the counter argument would be something like Netflix, where it's like, yeah, you know, maybe you thought something else would come along, but it's they just sort of slowly and steadily, like every new thing that came out, Netflix was built into it. And, you know, before you know it, that's sort of just the the standard. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and then lastly, uh, I, I only bring this up because it, it's it's from CES, but uh, Dell has new monitors and uh, Apple doesn't. And and Dell and monitors are not a substantial part of their core business, but yet they still manage to make new things. Yeah. I mean, as someone who uses both the Dell monitor at work and more recently here at home, um, I can attest they're they're pretty darn good. All right. This is running long. So uh, I'll let you take your pick of the week and then we'll wrap this up. Okay. Um, so my pick of the week, um, which will actually tie into that last long, longer topic nicely, is the harmony alexa skill or i guess i should say skills now because there's the original skill that came out 
a month or two ago, which we've we've talked about when we got into the smart home stuff on the show. Uh, but then this week, for whatever reason, they they had to do this as a second skill. Not really sure why, but um, there's a second harmony skill now, which greatly enhances the number of things that you can do now. So before, with the original skill, you could really only start and stop activities, which which still is just tremendously useful. Uh, but now with this new skill, you can sort of do kind of almost everything that you would you know traditionally think of doing with your TV remote. So you can change the volume, you can mute, you can pause, you can resume, you can change to like just a numerical channel. So you can you know say chain go to channel seven twenty or whatever. Um, and all that stuff works super super well. The only thing that's a little clunky about it is you unlike with the original harmony skill. You didn't have to do the whole like Alexa ask, you know, such and such service to do something. You could just say, you know, Alexa, turn off the TV. But with like these additional skills, you have to say, Alexa, ask Harmony to mute the TV. You can't just say, mute, you know, Alexa, mute the TV. So I'm not really sure why that is and that that's a little clunky. But um, even with that limitation, it's still super cool and surprisingly super useful. Well, good. Yeah, that that seemed like a bit of an omission, but yeah, that's it's it's neat that they're that they've expanded that, and it's very responsive. It, it is really, really responsive. Yeah, um, I was right there with you when it was first announced, thinking like, well, it, it, it's going to be so slow that it'd be quicker just to go get the remote. But especially with turning you know the TV on and off, it it's legitimately useful and and pretty quick. Nice. I do think you're probably going to have to put um, a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode to mute your Alexa. Because I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we've said it probably like 40 times unintentionally. I, I have I have certainly muted mine. Yeah. All right. Good pick. Uh, mine is going to be for uh, <clears throat> an iOS and Mac application combo called Just Press Record, which is a very, very good utility app that is a voice memo app. Uh, that automatically transcribes everything that you said uh, and puts it into iCloud Drive and makes it accessible across all your iOS devices and Macs automatically. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not much into the voice dictation or taking notes, but sometimes you just need to, like either your hands are full or you um, can't type quickly enough on a small touchscreen keyboard and you can just talk to it and then I will just dump that into that application then when I have time and I'm on my Mac, I can then um, look at the automatic transcription and then parse that stuff and throw it into OmniFocus or whatever I needed to do. So it's pretty good. And it's also got a decent Apple Watch complication, which I mean, I, I don't end up using that much, but in a pinch, it's not bad. So what, like, what do you typically use this for? Um, sometimes if I'm like creating a shopping list or I have like notes of something like that, like if I'm leaving a meeting or I, I have something I need to, rec- uh, take notes on, um, that's a lot easier if I don't have my laptop in front of me, because if I have like maybe a paragraph of stuff to write or like a list of things, um, I don't know. I just can't type fast enough, uh, before I'm going to forget it. So this ends up working for that a lot. There are weird use cases, but but I like it. Got it. Yeah, I think it's only like uh, I think it's five bucks on iOS and five bucks on the Mac. It's it's worth trying. Okay. Yeah, just press record. 
And that's what we say at the start of every episode. And with that, it comes to a close, I believe. Indeed.